Well, how is everybody doing this morning? Why don't we go ahead and lift up our hands. Father, we just thank you that we have this opportunity right now, that we were able to take time just to come before you. We're going to open up your word, and we thank you that as we do, Holy Spirit, you take hold with us, that you bring things to our remembrance. You show us things to come. You teach us, because that's what you are. You're the great teacher. We thank you that because we have you, it says that we have an unction and an anointing from you, and we know all things, because Holy Spirit, there's nothing that is hidden from you, So right now, we just choose to open up our hearts and to listen on the inside. And we just thank you for your guidance and revelation this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, we're going to continue on this morning in our series that we've been doing on the end times. And last week kind of threw a little bit of a wrench in when Hydro decided they were going to shut off our power on Sunday morning. How convenient is that? But it also gave us another opportunity for me to post another session with Reverend Joe Morris. So for those of you who access that online, I hope you had a great time with it. Um, I know I really enjoyed it. And uh, when he started that message and he said, oh, everybody needs to speed up and drink some caffeine. And my thought was, Joe, you need to drink less caffeine. You talk way too fast as it is. And so I hope that even though he speaks fast, you were able to get a bunch out of that. And uh, so we're going to continue on with that series this morning. I'm going to try and maybe bring it in for a landing today. But, uh, you know, every time I try to do that, it seems like God always extends my series. But uh, I want to remind you of something we were talking about two weeks ago. And how that when we teach on the things of the end times, that it should never produce fear in you. Now, most people would say, well, I'm not afraid of that, but it's actually a different type of fear that people experience when we talk about these things, and that is the fear of missing out. They think of all the things that if, if Jesus comes back and brings his, his sons and daughters back to heaven with him, what about all the things that I won't get to do because I'm still young, or my kids are young, you know, I haven't gotten married, or they haven't gotten married, or whatever the situation may be. You know, that's more of a common fear that we would have in these types of situations, What about all the things I didn't get to do? And that's why I so appreciate Joe's perspective on things is most people's idea of heaven is so boring and so bland and that God is making about to make us so robotic. And, you know, life is not going to be boring in heaven. And trust me, when you go there, you're not going to be missing out on the things that you didn't get to do here. Your children will grow there. They will experience things there. They'll experience things in a better environment that they could ever experience here on this year. So fear should never be the, uh, be the response that we have to this type of teaching when we think about the end times. It should never produce fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. So I want you to always keep that as the center whenever I talk about this topic, whether you hear somebody else talk about it, it is, should not produce fear in you. Right. The other thing I told you to keep in mind is that keep the important things the important things. You know, regardless of what you hear about end times teaching, it does not change the commission or the commandment. What do I mean by that? I'm so glad you asked that question this morning. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, 
It's Jesus' last conversation with his disciples, and he said, he came and he spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and the disciples knew what he was talking about. This is how he commissioned them the first time to go out two by two. He said, I've got all authority, now you take it and go. And he says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, amen. This is called the Great Commission. This is Jesus taking his disciples and commissioning them to go out and to reach people like you, to then release them to go out and reach more people. And so regardless of what you hear about end times preaching, it should never pull you away from the commission that God has given you. If you want, want to go a little bit deeper, he says it, uh, uh, the, Luke re records it a little bit differently in Acts chapter 1. He says, go to your Jerusalem. Go to your Judea, go to your Samaria, and go to the ends of the earth. What is he saying? Start where you are and let God take you. And so we are always responsible for where we are and those who are around us. And that commission will never, ever change. But he said, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. What was Jesus' commandments to them? He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about the 600 commandments of the law. Jesus summed them all up and he said in John 15, 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Matthew recorded it a little better. He said, they, had, they came to him and they asked him a question. They said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the first and the great commandment. And the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. And so nothing about end times teaching should ever take us away from the commission or the commandment. Some people preach end times as an escape theology, like things are getting so bad, we just can't wait to get out of here. As the world goes down, the church goes up. It's not an escape theology. I like as Joe says, it's a speed up theology. Move faster, love more, be kinder reach out to those around us. And so it should never take us away from those two very important perspectives that Jesus laid out for us. Because as we said in the episode number one of this series, the season doesn't change the sun. It says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He does not change. And so if he meant it when he said it, he still means it at the end. And so I want to bring things back to my perspective on this, though. We got two weeks of Joe. And my perspective, though, is I said that I am less concerned with what we will face ahead and more concerned with how we face it as Christians. God cares more about how your heart operates and how it works and how it reach out, reaches out than any of the details that could come up. And so in episode number one and two, we looked at 1 Timothy and we looked at 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and today I want to look at 2nd Timothy. You all ready for that? Yes. You doing all right? Yes. You ready to keep up? We got a lot to cover today. And so in 2nd Timothy chapter 3, Paul says this, 
to Timothy. He says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. What is will? Will is a certain article. He's telling something to Timothy by the Spirit of God that is going to happen. He says it's going to come. And you know, as I was thinking about this verse probably about five or six weeks ago, I was having a conversation with some other ministers and we brought up this topic and we were kicking some things off with each other. And there's a perspective that we all recognized was that there's an idea, I especially see it in a lot of American ministers, that somehow by our actions, we can change God's timeline. And I heard this so much with the last few elections, you know, because we elected so-and-so or didn't elect so-and-so, we have now extended time. I think that's a fallacy, but Jesus came the first time, it said when the fullness of time had come. Do you not think that his second coming will be the same way? It's a timing that he has put in his power and his time. And how did he know when to come? He looked across the scheme of all time. He looked at all the choices that you could make, saw the ones that you would make, and knew exactly when he would return. And so when it comes to end times theology, there is a set timescape that will not be changed by you. He already knows what you will do. And he won't change it because he's already seen it and made accounts for what you will believe, what you will say, the actions. And some people say, well, won't, doesn't that take away free will? No, not at all. He just adjusted ahead of time knowing what your free will would lead you to. And so you cannot change the timeline that God has for it. He was pretty specific with Daniel. He told him that there would be 490 years of the old covenant left, and 483 of them were fulfilled when Jesus walked into Jerusalem on that day. And so there are seven years that still need to be fulfilled from that old covenant system. God is a very precise person, and he has a timeline, and if the full had time had come for his first coming when the fullness of time comes for his second coming there is nothing you can do to change that and so when Paul says here to Timothy perilous times will come it's a certainty and so what is our responsibility in it then it's you believe for you and reach those you can reach when you can reach them and when time is up time is up but he said perilous times will come. What did he mean? The word perilous there is the Greek word kalopos, which means hard to do, hard to take, hard to approach, hard to bear, troublesome, and dangerous. So that's what he's talking about when he says that there's perilous times. There are going to be days that are hard to approach. We are standing in some days that some days you're like, how do I do this, God? How do I approach this subject? I believe we're starting to enter into those days. But the word kalipos here comes from the root word in the Greek, the word kalo, which means to loosen, to slacken, to relax, or to let down from a high place to a lower place. So how are these two words connected? Well, they're connected through the idea of reducing strength. Why are the days hard to take? Why are the days hard to approach? Because people are loosening their grip on God. 
People are relaxing their hold on what he has said about them. And when you walk away from the things of God, things get harder to do. Why? Without me, you can do no thing. All things are possible to him who believes, which means the less you believe, the more impossibles start to show up in your life. So as people slacken their grip on God, as, good, as Christian people, we're not talking about the word. He was writing to Timothy, the leader of a church, and was talking to him about how to raise up other ministers. He's saying they will slacken their grip. And so regardless of what some may do, I'm going to go ahead and set my heart and say, God, I'm not going to let go of my grip on you. As others let go, I'm going to hold tighter. As others believe less, I'm going to believe more. I'm going to hold on to your promises. So he says, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now let's switch over to the New Living Translation for the next little bit, because it'll give a little more modern English approach to it. Verse 1 again, he says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. Now in the next four verses, he goes on to tell Timothy what the character of men's hearts will be in those days. He's not talking about events, he's talking about character. And so this is what he said in verse 2. For people will love only themselves and their money. Anybody seen that lately? They will be boastful. They will be proud. They'll scoff at God. Disobedient to their parents. Not my kids, God, not my kids. <laughs> Ungrateful, not my kids, God. <laughs> they will consider nothing sacred. That's something we see a lot of. You know, the things that you wouldn't question doing 50 years ago, people are like, I'm going to do it just because it offends you. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel. They will hate what is good. What did the Bible say? Woe to you who calls evil good and good evil. It says they will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends. They'll be reckless. They'll be puffed up with pride. And they will love pleasure rather than God. Verse 5 says they will act religious but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Now, let's go back to the New King James for that last verse. It says that they will have a form of godliness, <coughs> but denying the power of. Now, I think that's a picture of a lot of the church. We do the motions, we do what we have to do, you know, we read our Bibles, but when it comes down to the things that God has said that are certain, can you believe? All things are possible to him who believes. Well, you know, I'm just not so sure about that. That God has good plans for you. Well, yeah, no, you, sometimes you don't know what God's going to do. You know, it's just, he, he, he loves us, but his, the way he loves us is just so different. No, he's not. He's a good father. Says you as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father. Amen. And so we have this idea that is encroaching more and more, that we have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. Let me tell you, the last days will be filled with demonstrations of his goodness and of his power. And so though some may walk away and do this, I'm doing this as a warning this morning, that's not going to be me and my heart. Don't let that be your heart. He's talking about the character that we'll see in people, but guess what? You control your character. 
But he says in the last section that I want to address here, he says, and from such people turn away? Now, I question the translation there, and I'll tell you exactly why. When we look at that in the Greek, it's three words, not four, and it says, kai tutos atropo, which means from such turn away. The word tutos means from these. What is the context of the four verses that we read? He's talking about the character of a person's heart, not the actions of a person. He's warning Timothy, don't let these characters of heart be found in you. Turn away from those character attributes. God does not call us to turn our backs on people because if we do that, who will reach them? And God said, I desire that all men come to my saving knowledge. So why would he ask you to turn your back? And so it reads more like this in the Greek, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from these, these character attributes, turn away from. You know, this kind of brings us to the theme that we've had for the second half of 2020, which is Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. I can't manage your heart, but I can manage mine. And we also have to keep this balanced by the word of God, where Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. Now, we have to understand, he was not talking about you being the seasoning of the world. Salt, for them, was a preservative. It stopped decay in their meats. And so when he's saying, you are the salt of the earth, you are the preservative. If you walk away, the world will go down really fast. So he's not asking us to turn away from people. He says, if a salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Is it that it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? That's talking about our position, not the position of the world, because we're the salt, not them. And it says in the next verse that you are the light of the world. And that a city set on a hill can't be hidden. How could you turn away from people? Your light should burn so bright that there could be nothing put around you to block it. That even when people try to limit your, out, your reach, the Holy Spirit opens up new doors. It says, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. Let your light shine. So Paul was giving Timothy a warning. And a warning is like a lighthouse. What is a lighthouse? When there's a, 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 a reef or rocks along the shoreline, they put up a lighthouse that shines its light out as a warning for everyone else to see, don't drive your boat here, you'll hit the rocks and you'll sink. Now how foolish would it be for me to be in my boat, I see the lighthouse, I see the warning, and I get, come safely into the harbor, and I'm going, oh God, I'm, I'm so glad I made it into the harbor, let's turn out the light and not consider everyone else that is still traveling those seas. We're not to turn away from people, we're to turn to people and be an example and a light and a love. 
Hebrews chapter 10, 24 says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Verse 25 says, and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more, that's right, Irena, and so much more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? The end day. As things get closer, we're to stir each other up in love and good works. Gather together more, not less. So we see this contrasted, though, with what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Thessalonians, that there would be a falling away would come first, and that some will depart from the faith. So though we should be moving more and closer and closer to God, there are some that are going to move further and further and further from God. But the thing is, we don't have to let that be us or those we influence, and those that are in our circles. We are to stir one another up. So back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 8 it says, Now Giannis and Yambres resisted Moses. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. Now, who the heck are Giannis and Yambres? Because if you read through the stories of Moses, you will not find their names. So you have to do a little bit, dig, dig a little deeper, and also think of who wrote this. It was Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He knew history. And do you know who Giannis and Yambres were to the Jews? They were the sorcerers who stood with Pharaoh during the Exodus. And why is that important? Because this is bringing parallel to the exodus that is about to happen with the church. When God gathers his sons and daughters, he's saying, just like in the first exodus, there's going to be people that will stand against you in the second exodus. And how did the story go, though? Moses is called to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he brings Aaron with him and he goes before Pharaoh and Aaron takes his rod and he throws it down and it turns into a snake. And Giannis and Yambres come with theirs and they throw their down and they turn into snakes. And the Pharaoh's like, oh, see, my people can do it too. And then Aaron's rod eats theirs. <laughs> there will be people that are going to rise up and resist the church, but their power ain't got nothing on God's. And as the first exodus was filled, marked with miracles, so will be the second exodus. And so the next verse says, they will progress no further, and their folly will be manifest to all as theirs was also. As Giannis and Yambres lost, so will those who stand against the church in the last days. So this is some great warnings that he's given to Timothy. But amongst all the warnings, we have to recognize something else that Paul is doing. He's encouraging Timothy. Next verse, he says, but you. Others may fall away, others may resist, but you. 
have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions, my afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, and what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. You want to talk about some extremes that Paul went through, shipwrecked so many times, beaten so many times, stoned, left for dead, bitten by snakes. He came through them all. How much more you? If the Lord delivered him out of them all, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is he any respecter of persons? Absolutely not. As he did for him, he'll do for you. And so again, we don't have to be afraid. There's warnings of things that will take place and you don't have to be affected or influenced by them. Verse 12 says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecutions. You know, persecution is not a bad thing when you've got a God who's got your back. People may try to bring you down, but he doesn't know how to let you fall. I love the, the verse, I believe it's in Hebrews, that said it's up to a man's master whether he stands or whether he falls. And you've got a great master. His name is Jesus. Verse 13 says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But again, but you. You always need to bring it back to what doesn't matter what others will do. What will you do? What did Joshua say? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you, you must continue in the things which you have learned, that you've been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. You notice what he didn't say? Timothy, you need to be shaken. You need to change everything you've done up until this point because, you know, everything's happening so fast, you really got to change your approach. Absolutely not. He said, the things that I told you are still the things that you need to do, and as they work before, they'll work today. They don't change. So we don't need to be shaken or moved. And he says in that, from a childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation, wise for deliverance, Wise for everything that soteria includes. Soteria is one of those wonderful verses in the Greek that's so inclusive. He cares about your prosperity. He cares about your health. He cares about delivering you from situations. Whatever situation you can think of, salvation is there to deliver you. That's what soteria is talking about. So when he says it's able to wake, make you wise to salvation, wise to deliverance from any situation, which is all founded and based on Christ Jesus. Isn't it so good to know that it's not how great you are, it's all about how great he is? That you can fail a thousand times, but he already succeeded the one time that mattered? Whew! So, So chapter four, he just cranks up the volume a little bit more, and he says, Timothy, I charge you therefore. He's given him the commission. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and with all teaching. Timothy, it doesn't matter what else happens. It doesn't matter what everybody else do. This is what I want you to anchor yourself to. Preach the word. Be ready. 
You don't know when opportunities are going to come up. Yeah, Jess, you got a little bit of a slap from the scripture saying, get your butt moving and go where I sent you. <laughs> We're to be ready in season and out of season. There's never an inconvenient time to share the love of God, to lay hands on the sick, to build someone up, to be there for someone. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. And he says, for the time will come when they won't, will not endure sound doctrine. And why we live in that day. You could preach the truth to some people and they're just like, no, 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 but I want to believe my pet doctrine that has no establishment in the word at all, but because somebody told me I want to keep it. No. So there's going to be a time when people aren't going to want to listen to the word. But according to their own desires, they have itching ears and they'll heap up for themselves teachers and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Didn't he already warn Timothy in 1 Timothy saying all of these crazy things people preach about the end are nothing but old wives' tales and fables? Isn't that what he told them? And so he reminds Timothy here, don't be turned aside by them, but you. Be watchful in all things. Endure inflictions and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do you know what? Timothy was an evangelist. He was a pastor. But what was he telling here to Timothy? It's all of our jobs to reach the lost. No one is exempt. It's not me, your pastor's job. It is my job as a Christian. It's not your neighbor's job to win the lost. It's all of our jobs because the commission and the commandment do not change. So it's interesting though what we see here. There's contrasting events happening. There's a falling away that Paul talks about, but also a great increase. And these things seem contradictory to one another. And how do they happen at the same time? And it forced me to ask this question. How does someone fall away? After you've tasted of the goodness of God and heard about how awesome he is, why would you want to walk away? So why do people walk away? And I believe that's answered in Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower. And we see how people interact with the word. And so Jesus, he tells them the parable, and as usual, the disciples don't get it. And so they co he comes to them later, and he's like, guys, do you still not understand? And he gives them the breakdown, and here's the breakdown in Mark 4.14. It says, the sower sows the word. That's exactly when you're reaching people, use the Bible. <laughs> Just a thought. <clears throat> the sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. Now, what, what would a waste, the wayside person be representative? These are people who stand off at the side. They're not in your field. They don't want to be in your field. You can preach the word till you're blue in the face. They don't want it. These are referring to people that are in active resistance to. Their hearts do not open up to it. And there are some people that are just a closed book. And until they choose to open their hearts, they will not receive the word. And so the wayside refers to this type of people. And it says the word is sown, and when they hear, Satan come and immediately takes away the word that was sown in their heart. There's no acceptance of it. It's like, there's the word, nope, it's gone. 
That's what that type is referring to. Verse 16 says, and likewise are the ones that are sown on stony ground. How do we, how do we take a look of what, what stony ground would be? Well, let's look naturally. When you have stony ground, it means there's no soil or very little soil. You maybe will have enough that you stick a seed in there and it may sprout, but it will only grow so far because there's nowhere for it to go. This represents types of people who they receive the word and they're like, hey, that sounds pretty cool. I'll add it to my life. God is not an addition to our lives. It says that he is the chief cornerstone. And if you need to make room, you make room for him, not the other way around. And so it represents people whose hearts are cluttered with all kinds of other thoughts and all kinds of other, other beliefs, and there's nowhere for the seed to grow. We see this on the sides of hills where there's a little bit of soil and the trees begin to grow and then they die out and they fall over and it looks like dead wood all over the side of a tree or the side of a mountain. This is what happens with people's hearts who are cluttered with other things. When we come to Christ, we throw everything else away and let him become the cornerstone. And so that's what stony ground is referring to, people like that. It says, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and they endure only for a time. Afterwards, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So this, these types of people could be included in the falling away, but these are more in reference to short-term people. You know, there's people that they receive the word, they're happy for a short period of time, and then they're like, no, I've got busy, I got this, other things are in the way, or, you know, it's just not that important to me. I don't believe that these make up the bulk of the falling away. Let's look at the next type. Verse 18 says, Now these are the ones sown among thorns. <sighs> what do we know about where thorns grow? They grow right alongside harvest in good ground. Thorns, another way we could say it is weeds. When we set up a garden, what do we do? We pull out all the grass, we pull out all the weeds, and we plant what we want in the garden. But what happens? Eventually little weeds come up. And what are we supposed to do with weeds? Pull them out of the garden. What happens when you don't pull out weeds? They take over. They grow. And most weeds are pretty thorny. If you've let it grown, grow quite a bit in your garden, when you grab them, they prick your hand. And so the longer you put up with them, the worse they are to deal with. And so when we talk about thorns, people with thorns in their life, it's they have good ground for the word to grow, and it may start growing, but what else are you growing in your garden? And it says, and the, there we go, oh, I crashed, there we go, come on. These are the ones sown among the thorns, and they hear, the ones who hear the word, and then the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. That's how people fall away. 
We let things into our lives that become a distraction from what we're supposed to be doing, from where we're supposed to be going. And it seems fine at the first. At the first of the season this year in my garden, we picked all of the weeds and it looked great. You know, by June and coming into July, those weeds were back. And we had to have the conscious decision, is it really worth spending the time pulling them out and in my thought process was, I hate the look of weeds. Let's pull them out. But weeds don't start or don't just automatically appear. It's things that we allow. And Paul, or uh, Jesus here in the book of Mark says, how do the weeds get there? We focus on the cares of this world. We focus on the deceitfulness of riches. God does not have a problem with you being rich or you being wealthy. He has a problem with it having your heart above all things. And it says, and the desires for other things, they enter in and they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That's how a falling away happens. But it doesn't have to happen for us because we are the ones who tend our own hearts. You get to choose what belongs in your life, and you get to choose the direction you will go with it. You know, right after the things we've read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul begins to tell a personal story of this happening. It says in verse 9, Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, he's departed for Thessalonica. Who was Demas? Demas was a fellow minister of Paul's, one who had traveled with him for years, had been supportive of him, been there in the good times and the bad, and he left. For the same reason the thorny ground people, he loved the present world more. This is when we need to remind ourselves this world is not our home. As Peter said, that we may be here, but we're not of this world. We are citizens of heaven. And so Paul goes on and he says, you know, he's de departed for Thessalonica and Cretans has gone to De Galatia and Titus for Dalmatia and only Luke is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you for he is useful to me for the ministry. I'm looking at a group of people that as the day of the Lord approaches, you are useful for the master's work. He has things that he wants for you to do, people for you to reach. You are useful just as Mark was useful for Paul. He says, get him and bring him with it. Right now, the Holy Spirit is putting a call out across his body around this world saying, are you useful? Are you willing? Is your heart open? There are people that need you. Back to Mark 4, because we can only tend our own heart, right? The last kind of soil is these are the ones sown on good ground. They hear the word, they accept it, they bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100. In order to affect our heart, we must first let our own heart become affected. We have to first choose that I want to be good ground, God. I want your things to grow in my garden. I want to see miracles happen in my life because I've just chosen to cling to you rather than everything else that the world has to offer. And as we see the day approaching, this desire and this zeal should grow more and more in our hearts. 
hearts as we're not looking to go, Lord, please come quickly so I can get out of here. It's no, Lord, I'm so glad that every day you are with me. There's never a day that I wake up when you're not here with me and that because you're here with me, you didn't leave the tools at home that I have been equipped. I have what I need for this season. You have provided, you have given instructions and I choose to run with you today and tomorrow and whatever day, how many as I have left, I choose to run and be good ground for you, Lord. Because we only can work with our heart and then let it move out from there. So through the book of 2 Timothy, we see a contrast of Paul's warnings about what would happen, but then instructions about how Timothy was to respond to them. You want to hear all the instructions of response? 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, because of that, don't be ashamed of my testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Verse 13 of the same chapter says, Hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, That you, the good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and in the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle, idle babblings, for they will increase all the more to ungodliness. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. You ready for the greatest thing that you're going to hear this week? The next great move of God begins in you. Hallelujah. So, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the great days that you have ahead for us, for me, for the people here, the people listening via the internet. God, we thank you that there is great days ahead, that there is no weapon formed against us that will prosper. Whatever we shall see in the days ahead, we know that you deliver us out of them all, for you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Now, maybe you're here this morning or watching via the internet and you haven't even made Jesus the Lord of your life. That's the first place. That's where you begin. You become that good ground where the word can be planted and grow. And so we would love to pray with you right now, wouldn't we, church? Just pray this with us. Say, Father, I thank you for Jesus. I make room for him and I receive him into my life to let him be the cornerstone of my life. I thank you for the good things that you bring with him. And I thank you for the great days that you have for me ahead. I say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you prayed that prayer with us this morning, we would love for you to get in contact with us. We want to get some resources into your hand, get you hooked up with a good church in your area. If you're in the Smith Falls area, we say welcome home. There's so much more for you to learn and to grow in. And so we say come on and let's get hooked up. Guys, this is a topic that should put a fire in our belly. Because God is not the God, just the God of the Bible. He's the God of your today. He wants to work with you today. And as he was there for them in the past, he'll be there for you today in your presence. So cling to him. Pastor Robin. Amen. So we've been talking about end times, but the word says while the earth still remains, seed time and harvest still continues. Amen. And so we're going to do that. To take up uh, the offering. And uh, there's several ways you can give. You can give online, wordchurch.ca slash give, and or there's a basket at the back as you leave. Drop off your tithes and offering in there. And so let's release our face and say this together. This is my seed. I sow it into the kingdom of God. Seed, do what you do best, grow. I sow you to spread the gospel. I sow you to strengthen believers. I sow you to go where I cannot I saw you to grow, multiply, and return in great supply. Harvest, I receive you. Lack, I resist you. His supply is sufficient. I walk in abundance of grace. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. You are blessed. <laughs>